I love that initial instinct and the contrast between how people behave versus what they say. Because they'll be like, oh, you know, I like to listen to all different kinds of music and would maybe look down on music that might be too repetitive. But you can get their phone and look at their playlist <laughs> history. And they sometimes listen to the same Coldplay song like 57 times. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast with Sid Finkelstein, and on this episode, I have as my guest, Elizabeth Helmuth Margulies, who is the author of On Repeat, How Music Plays the Mind, as well as The Psychology of Music, a very short introduction. She directs the Music Cognition Lab at Princeton University. Her research uses theoretical, behavioral, and even neural imaging methodologies to investigate dynamic moment-to-moment experience of listeners without actually any special musical training. She herself, however, is trained as a pianist. It's really a great conversation because everyone loves music and we know that music is connected to our brains and how we think. Music and math are connected. Her colleagues in her lab ask one question after another that's kind of cool. So, for example, why do we like the same type of music time and time again? In fact, something like 90% of the music we listen to is music we've actually heard before. Why is that? Is there some type of evolutionary preference? Who knows? I'm going to ask her because Elizabeth actually knows. Every human culture makes music and every culture makes music with repetition. It's really interesting. I mean, how does a song end up getting stuck in your head? What is new music? How is it perceived? How new is it? What makes a hit? How does that actually happen? And why can one musical performance actually move an audience to tears and another compel them to clap, to snap along, to dance? How does that happen? How is music connected to our emotional state and our cognitive state? And how does all that fit in? I asked Elizabeth all of those questions. It's just so fascinating, so interesting to have this conversation, to learn from her. And I also wanted to know about her and her background, what got her to where she is today, why this field, what it was like growing up, what was music for her growing up, what did she look at, what did she think about, and how does this music cognition lab actually work? She did a big keynote in Athens in August about music, listening, and the imagination. And I think that's also really interesting to talk about. So, you know, in the SIDCast, I do like to talk to a lot of different people, different backgrounds, different histories, different life experiences, and we learn a lot. And this time we have a professor from Princeton that is delving into this topic of music and cognition and neuroscience and behavioral thinking and what we like and what we don't like in emotions, which I think is just inherently fascinating for so many people. So let's get right to it. Here's Elizabeth Margulies. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And it's a pleasure to be here today with my guest, Elizabeth Margulis. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for joining me. You know, the stuff you do is... Very cool, very interesting. And when we were chatting before, I said I was a novice. It's beyond a novice. Of course, everyone loves, I don't know about everyone. I could ask you that if everyone loves music. I've never come across anyone who hates music. Is it the case that everyone likes music? In fact, there is a small population of people who have an actual condition called musical anhedonia. Oh my God. (laughs) Where they experience pleasure in connection with lots of other things that we would normally experience as pleasurable, but not music. So process it correctly and normally insofar as there's a correct way of processing music. So perform normally on kind of recognition memory tests and what have you. But yeah, don't experience pleasure. Well, I'm glad I paused myself to (laughs) ask the question. So how did you get interested in this entire field of music cognition? It actually started in high school for me. I grew up playing classical piano. I spent a lot of my time doing that. So this was, I guess, in the late 80s, early 90s. And questions about artificial intelligence and cognitive science were very much in the popular imagination at that time. So I was reading a lot in those fields just for fun. And I came across this book that I suppose lots of people read at that time. I don't think they necessarily do anymore. But it was a popular press book by Douglas Hofstadter called Gödel Escher Bach that purported to bring together these big ideas about music and computation and what have you. And that seemed really exciting to me because it combined some of these 
ways of thinking and ways of doing that that had been interesting to me. So I actually wrote him an email. And it was at a time, I think, where it was like resourceful to figure out how to write an email because we're not <laughs> doing that as much. So somehow, and basically my email was, this is so exciting to me. I want to do this. What, where should I go? What should I do? And he wrote me back and sort of told me who are the people uh, that are thinking about these and where, where are the institutions that might support that. That's fantastic. You know, when I was hunting around a little on Twitter to see what you're up to lately, I think, didn't you post something a while ago about someone else that you wrote a message to when you were a kid? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, so I didn't have a lot of local access. I mean, I probably did, but I didn't know about it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure there are lots of people in St. Louis, but I just didn't know them doing this kind of stuff. So I definitely was like a letter and email writer. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. So you're in high school when you read this and you start to think, but you're already performing with piano, playing piano. Yeah, I was spending a lot of my time practicing piano. Yep. A lot of kids practice piano, but given you're where you ended up and music is so central to your life, were you thinking that you are aspiring to be a concert pianist, for example? Many, many people who train as classical musicians, you get to this moment where you love it so much and it's so fun. The career paths, however, are so narrow. And so there's that internal conflict around those choices. I basically ended up deciding that I wanted to give myself a chance to really go all out in the mm -hmm. performance space. So I ended up choosing to go to a music conservatory, even though I had very deep academic interests that I had also pursued in, you know, elementary school and high school and what have you, and continued while I was at conservatory to read and do explore some of these other areas. But my thinking was that this is probably the only four years I'm going to get to really see how far I can go there. And I'm just going to do that and then see what's next. I'm kind of shocked in retrospect that my parents let me do that. That seems bold. <laughs> yeah. Well, they saw their kid with a dream, I suppose, and say, well, let's see how far I can go. Yeah, I think their sense also was that was going to make me happy. And that's what I wanted. And mm -hmm. then I could figure out whatever the fallout was later. Which conservatory did you go to? I went to the Peabody Conservatory of Music, which is in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. And so you're there and there must have been some pretty amazing classmates. Maybe some actually became professional along the way. I'm just curious because everyone faces this in every field. Unless you win a gold medal at the Olympics, you're never the absolute best in the world at anything other than for a short period of time. Maybe in academia, we can do a little bit like that because we can become ultra specialists in an area. But I'm curious about what it felt like when you saw some of these other classmates. I mean, when did you know that they were just playing at a different level than you were? I have a lifelong liberty to seek out situations that are like that. So I really enjoy being the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> like I genuinely feel very comfortable in situations where I have less expertise or people have more experiences in a certain area than me. I find that very energizing and exciting. So that part of conservatory was not dismaying to me in the mm -hmm. way that I think it can be. For some people, it was exciting. So I view that, I guess, as a feature, not a bug. <laughs> well said. That's great. Because you know, I've interviewed athletes, people that maybe were great in college and even on Olympic teams, but not necessarily being the champion. It's not that they felt like others were so much better than them, but they kind of realized that at some point that was the case. They went as far as they could in their field and then they moved on. The other thing I noticed was just about the level of commitment or focus, or you might call it obsession. I had, I really did have that for piano. I mean, I had just listened to so much music and played through so much and just really had gone far in terms of just number of hours I had engaged with it. But I was still very curious about other things in a way I didn't know would persist. So I thought maybe when I got to conservatory and I was immersed in this environment with everyone doing this, I just want to play all the time. But that did not happen. I continued to want to learn about other things. And I ended up actually disobeying my piano teacher who had told me that I was not allowed to get on the bus and go down to the Johns Hopkins University campus. I guess Peabody was a part of them at this time, had become a part of that institution. But I did it anyway. I did not disclose that I was doing this. And I went and took a class called Minds, Brains, and Computers. And I guess that had the thrill of rebelliousness, which is, I mean, in <laughs> retrospect, that's a pretty sad like, you know, 
way of rebelling. It reveals a limited imagination, let's say. I mean, there are more exciting ways a person could feel rebellious. Well, it sounds like it was actually a pretty good rebellion because that's not that far removed from where he ended up going. True, exactly. By the second class period, there had just all these questions about what would happen if we applied some of these tools and perspectives to some of the topics that I'm confronting over here in the conservatory. So even though I had gone to conservatory expressly to insulate myself from these other activities, I guess I still found a way around that. That just showed myself that the academic interests were genuine and long lasting. You also said something interesting about the connection between your actual playing and then maybe the research around it. So I'm going to say that it must surely have been a central element, the fact that you were a serious pianist, that that affected some of the questions you started to think about as you got into more of the psychological or neuroscience part of it. Because I was looking at your lab at Princeton and I just wanted to see who was in there. So many smart young people there. It's great to see. And several of them seem to be at some point pretty serious musicians. So it's not a shock that someone with that background would want to study that more. But how essential is it? Maybe how common is it to have that connection? I mean, that is the entry point for people to start caring enough about these questions to develop these skills to address them, I suppose. But I would say that as much as my experience as a classical pianist informed the kinds of questions I was asking, and I do think was important in many ways, it's also a background that many people in my field share. So many people grew up with these aspects of classical training. So there's also this downside to that where you have almost an overrepresentation. I mean, not almost, you have an overrepresentation uh-huh. of that lived experience in the field versus all the other kinds of important, essential ways of interacting with music. I get really excited these days when somebody comes from a really different musical background or isn't a performer. They just collect a bunch of records and are really into that. Anything that's kind of different from that background that has become so typical of people who feel. So you got serious about this, got your PhD at Columbia, which is where I got my PhD. And maybe that's one of the reasons I thought, well, there's only probably another 20,000 PhDs in Columbia in the last 50 (laughs) years, but I'm still interested. How long is the PhD program and what was it in specifically? That was five years and it was a combined master's PhD program, five years in music. And one of the wonderful things about Columbia's musicology PhD program is that, I don't know if it's all the time, but I think it's at least often and possibly all the time, students have a cognate field as well. So that could be anthropology or philosophy or psychology or many of these other areas that they're using to help inform or history sometimes. Yeah, to help inform their study of music. So I had a really positive experience there in terms of bringing different ways of knowing into my course of studies. So it's a topic that many people will wonder, well, how many jobs are there in universities? So what is this scenario? Because I have a good friend whose daughter is graduating in anthropology and she's very, very talented, but there's just not a ton of jobs available. And she'll end up with something good, I'm pretty sure, but it's not going to be easy. The situation in the academic job market is just generally pretty terrible. I think especially just coming out of the pandemic, that's something that a lot of programs are reckoning with and thinking through how to think about the future. So there's that general background issue. I think when it comes down to specifically doing work that is interdisciplinary in this way, Many institutions are mindful of how important work like this is. So work that crosses typical disciplinary boundaries, just because students are going to obviously encounter a world where problems don't nest neatly within particular disciplines. So the more they acquire skills about thinking between different paradigms, the better prepared they are for their post-collegiate experience. I'm 100% behind that idea, but I think what happens in academia, as you well know, is that there's deep, deep specialization and you often need to be associated with a department. And then as you write books or articles, they get reviewed by people that are very much focused on one, sometimes on a subfield as well. That makes it hard to do that kind of interesting work, that interdisciplinary work. How did you pull it off? How are you pulling it off? Again, I think one asset, one thing, something that's worked for me really well is my aforementioned comfort level with criticism or with being behind the way somebody else is thinking about a topic. Because if you're doing interdisciplinary work and you're talking to multiple audiences, you're going to be subjected to very different kinds of critique from both sides. 
And what I love about that is that it ends up putting pressure on your projects and pushing them in directions that move them forward and are really helpful. But you have to have that comfort level with people. If you're working in an interdisciplinary space, often what you are presenting to an audience within a particular discipline doesn't just churn out the same thing that is based on the assumptions that everyone agrees on. Mm -hmm. It's kind of challenging maybe assumptions in some way. And so responses can be critical. So generally having an attitude towards criticism that is welcoming and doesn't internalize too much can be really useful. Yeah. So that's quite a good lesson in and of itself. I mean, it sounds like you're pretty confident just naturally because you don't let it get to you. Well, I wonder if actually growing up as a classical pianist helped with that somewhat because you experience a lot of rejection, right? You go to competition, you're like, play your heart out and someone's like, no. (laughs) So sometimes I wonder, I don't know if that helped shape that, just how experiencing a lot of rejection helped raise that comfort level. Wow. Interesting. So how long did it take you to kind of say you wanted to write a book and specifically, was it your first book on repeat how music? Yeah. On repeat how music plays the mind. Exactly. Was that based on some of your dissertation work or your early research or both? No, actually, I had started out my dissertation and then projects I'd done immediately following that were around questions about what people expect while they're listening. So what they think is going to come next and how that impacts their experience of a sequence of sounds, I suppose. At some point, I thought, okay, I don't feel like I can address that question adequately without understanding repetition better. And as I sought out more information about repetition in the literature, findings in that area were pretty thin and scant. So I was like, okay, I have this talk to give at McGill University, which was a big center about interdisciplinary research about music in this way. I thought, okay, I'm going to take the opportunity of this talk this big interdisciplinary community and just ask some questions about repetition and collect what is out there, do that. And so in prepping for that talk, I stopped and looked down and I had 35,000 words and I was like, oh, this is not actually a talk. This is a book. (laughs) You had 35,000 words in your notes to prepare for the talk. Correct. Wow. So it kind of snuck up on me. I was just sitting there trying to figure this out and think through something. The questions just ended up taking Mm. a person really far. So it wasn't that I set out to write a book per se. It's that the the topic just seemed to require sorting out (laughs) in that way. It's almost like you didn't choose the book. The book chose you. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. I mean, and then it was a process figuring out the mechanics of writing the book proposal and what all of that. And I had a good experience with all of that too. So what you found, I mean, you found a lot of things, but you found that repetition is a really big deal and that people like it. So maybe you could share a little bit about why that is and what it means. One of the really intuitive ways of thinking about what repetition's doing in musical listening is to take a listen to Diana Deutsch's speech to song illusion, where you can find that online. There are lots of video clips and websites about that, where you can just take a little snippet of speech repeated a number of times. And across the course of those repetitions, it starts to sound like it's being sung. So I feel like that really allows you to introspect about what seems music-y about repetition sometimes. The same thing works, by the way, for sequences of sounds. And you might have experienced this if you're just sitting at a stoplight and you've got your blinker on and you've maybe got these really undifferentiated clicks, but they can start to sound rhythmicized, like certain clicks are louder than others and they've got this whole beat rhythm going on. All of those are cases where there's something really simple and repetitive happening out there that nevertheless draws you in, in a way that's pretty intriguing. So is it the case that most music is repetitive? That's a great question. And I think there are all kinds of music and there are types of music that expressly try to avoid this kind of repetition because they're trying to explore some other aspect of this thing that's interesting. The example I used to give was on the radio, although I appreciate that that's like a less good metaphor every time or a less good example as the years pass. But if you think about pop music, for example, not only are the songs themselves often pretty repetitive with the chorus that comes back a number of times over the course of the short song, but then also they tend to get played and replayed and people just listen to them a lot of times. Right. So it's not definitely not all music, but a lot of music and a lot of music that's embedded within different kinds of cultural traditions and so forth does have repetition as some kind of central element. 
But why do people like it so much? If you just brought it up, just saying it, people would say, wouldn't that be boring? I love that initial instinct and the contrast between how people behave versus what they say. Because they'll be like, oh, you know, I like to listen to all different kinds of music and would maybe look down on music that might be too repetitive. But you can get their phone and look at their playlist history. And they sometimes listen to the same Coldplay song like 57 times. I tried to figure out ways of exploring this that were empirical. So one thing I did was take some excerpts of music that particularly tried not to repeat in this very explicit way. And I just manipulated them so that I would like copy little snippets and then reinsert them so that I had manufactured a kind of repetitive version of these examples. And then played them for people who didn't especially listen to this kind of music in their day-to-day life. You know, not only did people like the repetitive excerpts more, but they thought they were more likely to have been crafted by a human artist rather than randomly generated by a computer. And then if you talk to people about how their experiences changed in these versions that were more repetitive, sometimes they'll talk about moving along more or feeling like the music was get stuck in their head more easily. So there's something about the way repetition invites you to participate, whether overtly, like in the context of singing happy birthday at a party, for example, where the fact that you know all how it goes (laughs) allows you to join in. But also just imaginatively, because we know that the motor system is engaged even when people are passively listening to music. So this sense of imagined participation or moving along with music, even if it's not happening expressly with a person's actual body, there seems to be some imaginative dimension there that's important. Is there some type of evolutionary preference for some reason for repetition and people enjoying it and preferring it and choosing it much more than they probably think they do? People who take this evolutionary viewpoint and try to think things through in those terms will sometimes say, okay, well, if there's a sequence of sounds that you encountered previously and you're still around, it didn't kill you. (laughs) So that's good. (laughs) But then there's like a competing novelty seeking imperative because if you don't generalize, you don't learn to deal with different kinds of environments, you're susceptible to changes. People sometimes look at those different preferences interacting and that's why people with that perspective say when you listen to something again and again, you tend to like it more at first, that ultimately you can do that too much, max out, and now further repetitions, you end up liking it less and less. So people will say that's where the novelty seeking imperative kicks in. Yeah. Let me ask you about that because it's an interesting contrast between novelty seeking and looking for something that's new and then this comfort level with what we know and what's being repeated. A few years ago, Derek Thompson wrote a book called Hitmakers. It's a pop book, let's call it, not an academic book, but a good book. And his argument was, he talked about movies and music and other things, but the best way to summarize the argument is when you're pitching a movie, what do you say? Well, it's like Star Wars, except that they're children. In other words, it's something, it's really a dumb idea, but it's something that people can relate to. It's like this movie. It's like something you've seen, but it's also different at the same time. And he had plenty of examples in a lot of different fields, music as well. But it's that combination that makes something successful. What do you think about that idea? That's a very influential idea around the cognitive science of of music, because this comes back to the idea that the expectations you have while you listen are important because you need it to be familiar enough that you generate these expectations that then the music can thwart in some way because there's all this literature about how the music doing something surprising really engages people's effective response. Those are the moments, for example, when people tend to get chills when they listen. So it has to do with expectations a lot as well. If you know something good is going to happen and you're looking for it and you enjoy it when it does happen. Correct. That's or and also enjoy it when something else happens. So it's this kind of complex relationship between what you're predicting and what happens or doesn't happen. But it's important to say that's really only one kind of musical pleasure. There are all kinds of really powerful musical experiences that don't come from generating expectations from other, that they come from other kinds of mechanisms. It's just the expectation one has received a lot of attention because you can look at what's happening note to note in the music and then link that up with what people are experiencing. So there's just been a lot of research in that area. What are some of the other ways that you or others have found about how music gives people pleasure and enjoyment? For example, people often imagine 
something that's not itself musical at all while they're listening to music. Examples of that include autobiographical memory, where there's a song that conjures up very concrete memories from your own life. Or people will imagine dramatic stories like film scenes to whatever they're listening to. And then those things you're imagining themselves can be pleasurable. So it's more about the music triggering something that is pleasurable than anything about the music itself. I'm thinking now, I don't know why, but I used to listen to Cat Stevens. I only have a couple of songs in particular. Actually, it's funny. One of the songs is called Sad Lisa, which is your name, but (laughs) bad example for you. But in any event, when I would be writing, this is when I was a little younger, when I would be writing, I would listen to it because ordinarily when I write now for years as a scholar, et cetera, I either want silence or I want no background noise. But I was listening to the words at that time and the song at least I think I was in the melody. And it made me able to flow as I was writing. I mean, I even remember it. It's a few years ago. I mean, that's another example of music. It gives pleasure, enjoyment, but it also becomes a creativity hack, if for want of another term. People use music for all these kinds of purposes, including mood regulation, sports preparation. You can find untold innumerable playlists on Spotify whose title is about some function like music for studying to music to hype you up before you leave for a night out. Yeah. Now that you just say that, it's kind of obvious. Of course, I have a playlist called music for cooking. That's kind of what I do. But then also you think of military and many armies would have musicians and sometimes beginning of the battle, in fact. So I don't know if that's to motivate people as much as the signal, okay, the time has come. Yeah, but the more you think about it, the more music is so intertwined into so much. Going back to the first thing I asked you, people that don't enjoy music or don't appreciate music seems sad, I think, (laughs) or missing. Right. I think it is a bigger impairment in their life than it might seem at first glance. And that goes for people. There's music in Hedonia. There's also just amusia where people have trouble with the fine-grained pitch changes that allow them to recognize tunes or tell if there's a wrong note or not. So similarly, both those kinds of problems end up being pretty deep for people often. What about religion? Seems like music is central to so many, maybe all. I mean, is there a religion that's developed without some type of repetitive music of some sort? That's a great question. In fact, there are some cultures and languages where there isn't a different word for music from the word for religious ritual, like together wrapped into a broader category. Yeah. So I think that there's something about the way ritual often has this repetitive aspect is connected to music's repetitive qualities as well. Because when you're re-encountering, say, in a ritual context, the same thing, same kind of set of behaviors, it's clear those behaviors are not intended to produce the specific ordinary goal they normally would. Like if you're ritually washing a bowl, like the bowl is not dirty at that point, but that there's something more going on there. And so you're, as a participant in the ritual, you're encouraged to shift your attention to whatever that deeper level is. I think there's something like that with music too, that when you keep hearing the same sequence of notes, it can seem very different because it's pushing your attention to other aspects of the sound that maybe if you just heard it once, you wouldn't be able to tune into. Makes me think, as we're talking about this, why more people are not studying this topic? Because music (laughs) is so central to life, to being a human, to humanity. Historically, culturally, obviously in the present day in multiple dimensions, probably there's therapies related to music. Actually, one of the best ways to teach language is through music. Kids remember the song in another language and all of a sudden they know something. That's my thought about it every day. I think it's true that people (laughs) sometimes, it seems maybe obscure or like even frivolous or something to study music and, you know, the minds. I've had people, like I had somebody in a math department once be like, like, what is the point? The idea is exactly there. Insofar as you care about people's minds, caring about music seems like a way of getting to that bigger question. That's pretty important. The mathematician said, what is the point? Did you bother trying to answer that question? Because sometimes there's no point. An important thing to remember for anybody listening who's trying to work between fields is that I do think you can have these conversations and people can hear each other most of the time. But there are some people at the fringe of either where you just are not going to convert them and they're not going to hear what you're saying. And I think you just recognize when you're there and accept it. 
Yeah, it's like you know, banging your head against the wall sometimes. I've had a few colleagues like that over the years, so I know what I'm talking about. I read an article in New Yorker a few years ago that I think it was some companies doing this and there's certainly some musicians that were analyzing music, maybe music analytics. It was pop music. I'm not sure what they were extracting. I think it was much more fine grain than, say, chords or broad elements of the music. Their goal was to identify what sold, reverse engineer hit songs, and then say, okay, we want to create a hit song. Here are the elements that we need to put together. So do you know that work? Is it legit work? That wasn't done by academics, as I recall in the article, that people like you that study this stuff. But I'm just curious about that and whether you could do that. Can we, can you re-engineer by learning how to re-engineer, reverse engineer music, create a hit song if you wanted to? This is a perennial question. I'd say, I'd use one kind of example, which is that if you took like a Tony Bennett song, there's a time where you imagine adolescence in the U.S., And they would like pay to hear that music. Then there's like a time where you could play that at detention to make it more torturous for high schoolers to encourage them to reform their ways. And then like it came back again and then it was like high schoolers want to hear that Mm -hmm. again. And my point in bringing that up is if you have a system that's trying to figure out what are the sequences of sound that are going to generate a hit, it's not just in the sequence of sounds because it's this whole relationship between what people have heard coming into that, how it's connected to identity and context. And all of that is this big complex system that results in one song being a hit at a particular moment and place and not in another. It's not that you couldn't necessarily understand that in some way that was relevant in terms of predicting where music might go six months or a year from now in a certain place for certain people. But it was more complex than just notes would be my main thought. Well, how does our brain choose to love a particular song? You know, when you ask people, do you have a favorite song or favorite songs? Most people will be able to tell you right away what it is. How does that happen? Is there something going on in the brain that makes that happen? And I wonder whether there are a couple of principles that come out from work you've done or others that kind of relate to that. So I'll mention a couple of studies. One study that we did was inspired by research that Baba Shiv and colleagues did about wine, where he had people lie in an fMRI scanner and sip wine through a magnet safe straw (laughs) and told them that the wine they were sipping either cost $10 or it cost $90. Not only did people say they liked the wine that was allegedly more expensive, more, they also reward circuitry activated selectively for that wine they'd sipped in that condition. So we did something similar, but we used 70 second excerpts of piano music telling people either that they were listening to a world-renowned professional pianist or a conservatory student of piano. Mm -hmm. And we saw the same thing that they saw in the wine study, but it's more surprising because in our work, they had 70 seconds to get over their initial bias and like clue into what was actually in the sequence of sounds. But it was so powerful, their set of expectations that they brought to what they were hearing, that people really struggled to get past that. I guess there are several lessons for that. One's around bias and it's a darker kind of message. But another is just a reminder that the social embedding and the context within which people experience music really matters. So if if someone you think is the greatest, like played this for you and when you were having a special moment or you were at this concert that we were with your friends, it was really powerful socially, that can just put you in the frame of mind where the music can imprint in this way. And then sort of the second body of literature I'd mention is work that has looked at powerful moments of musical response where people experience chill. And the reason they look at chills is because lots of people have them in response to music. So if your hair stands on end, you might get goosebumps, shivers in your spine. But the way these studies work is often they'll have people bring in their own chill-inducing music and then use that music as control for the other participants. It's so variable what music ends up being powerful to what people. And that's because it's a matter not only of, again, what's in the sounds, but the way they've encountered what's in the sounds and how that's related to everything else in their lives. The generalized reflection that comes from that is really broad because you talked about the dark side of bias. And as you know, orchestras have not been historically very diverse. And then they change the rules and do blind auditions. And all of a sudden it becomes more, I don't know if that trend is still going on, but it certainly made a big difference. But the point is, it's almost like there's no absolute definition 
of quality, if you want to call it. Even for the wine example, it fits into that. This is a good wine. No, well, it depends. You tell me it's from this famous vineyard in Paris, in France, rather. Bordeaux, we're going to love it. I don't know. That's a little, I mean, it's just the way it is because that tells you how our brains do things. But in a way, it's also a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I get that. I mean, the way we think about it, we have, so I have a paper with two other people, Phil Thompson, who's a psychologist, and Nick Bullitt, who's a philosopher. We have a paper coming out in Psych Review that tries to think about music appreciation and what is a model? What's the psychological model of appreciating music? And by appreciating being any kind of valenced value, music valuing that people do in any kind of form. The way we look at it is that there's really these three elements. So one is this whole contextual aspect that we've just been discussing. Another is around a person's self and sense of identity, because we know that by having these kind of autobiographical memories in response to music or by music coming from a genre that you have a lot of experience with personally, it can kind of reinforce your sense of self in various ways. But then the third part is the structure part. What is happening in the sequence of sound itself? And it's really all three of those that mm-hmm. come together. It's not arbitrary. It's not that like anything can do anything. <laughs> There's just aspects of all of these. And I think the trick is in sensitively figuring out what aspect of musical experience falls in what category. And I think that's the kind of thing you can only do if you have some pretty serious interdisciplinary conversations. Because there are people who know more about the context part, people who know more about the structure part. They're unwilling to ever have a conversation. doesn't feel like you're going to get very far. Well, the fact that the structure of the sound is one of the three, that makes me feel a little bit better. Feel better. That's good. (laughs) That's kind of the pure thing going on here. That's not being influenced by others or expectations or context. Pure is really not even the right word because identity is who we are. So there is something about the structure of the sound. Related to this is the music that our parents liked, we tend not to like. And the music that kids like, we tend not to like. There's this kind of intergenerational thing that goes on. Why is that? I mean, I can imagine coming up with a story around context and rebellion from what your parents like. And that's the reason why you don't like it. But is there anything else going on there? Is that something you've looked at or thought about? So we know that adolescence is the period in life that's most relevant to setting a person's musical preferences. So people are like seeking out new stuff and discovering it and choosing it actively as adolescents. And then what tends to happen, okay, not for everybody, but this tends to be the overall trend, is that then as people move through the lifespan, the music that they tend to gravitate to is this music from their adolescence. There's even this documented reminiscence bump where if you just play people snippets of the billboard chart topping music from lots of different years, the ones that they know and the ones that they have the most autobiographical memories, like personal memories associated with, tend to be from their own adolescence. And then secondarily, from their parents' adolescence, actually. The idea there being that before they had agency to choosing their own music, they got a lot of exposure to the music their parents liked, which is the music from their adolescence. So they have often many personal memories associated with that music as well. Well, how do they know what their parents listened to when the parents were adolescents? I think it's because (laughs) when they were little, that's what the parents had on around the house or in the car before they could pick what was on. So they just have this exposure to it. Mm -hmm. that's more than music in between those two adolescences. There's like a dead period where they don't know that stuff. (laughs) What do you think about playlists on Spotify and elsewhere? I mean, is it easier to discover new music now? I think it's got to be easier because of streaming. And you could do an Alexa and say, play music like so-and-so, and and it's going to be part of the genre, but there'll be some new things that come up. Does that change anything or we still get imprinted with this kind of adolescent effect, even though it is easier to discover new music if you wanted to spend time on it, to do that now than ever before? I think that's right in certain ways. Because that this adolescent time period is so critical for music preferences, looking at what they're doing and how they're using technology can be especially informative. And usefully for me, I parent teenagers. So I get to witness a lot about how they're finding music and how it's becoming important to them. What I see in their patterns of behavior really reinforces what I've read about from other studies and sources, which is that still this personal dissemination of like, my friend told me to listen to this. My friend sent me that really seems to be the dominant mode of transmission, despite that there are all these tools for discovery. The good old fashioned word of mouth is still there, even with all the technology. On this topic of expectations, when someone recommends a movie to you, 
They're raving about it. And then you go and see the movie. At least for me, you go in and you have very high expectations. And that makes it harder, for me at least, to like it because I'm expecting greatness. And if I'm getting average, I'm a little disappointed. I've learned over the years not to listen to anybody else about movies because it means I can't enjoy it for what the artists, what the filmmakers created. But that happened a lot. So I would imagine that's also true for music or anything else, right? And that suggests kind of a different hypothesis to what we've been talking about. Because expectation in this case, let's say higher expectations, are going to lead to less liking as opposed to more liking. Absolutely. I mean, I think what you can see there that's really pronounced is the importance of the self-identity dimension. Because I think that disappointment also that you might experience if your friend loved a movie and it's not doing it for you, I can just feel like, I don't really get that person. You feel kind of distanced from them if they had a powerful experience in reaction to something that you don't, that doesn't speak to you. And I think that's part of why you get people's music preferences in their profiles on dating apps oh, yeah. and whatnot, is that people really do feel like there's something about their identity that resides in these kinds of aesthetic preferences. You have a new book you're working on. It's coming out later this year. What's the thesis in a nutshell? In a nutshell, it comes out of the conversation that you and I were just having earlier, where the thesis there basically is you can't just look at sequences of notes and figure out some of the answers, some of these big questions. Similarly, you can't just look at uses and context, but that really you need to use tools that have been developed in complexity science and kind of elsewhere to bring these factors together, think about them in new ways to move forward on some of these big topics. And I just wonder, what's the state of research and music cognition, I imagine, has many other aspects that you don't always participate in every aspect of it, but more about the field. Where are we at in this? Is it growing? Are there more people getting into it? The book that you wrote some maybe eight years ago now got quite a lot of publicity because it was intriguing about repetition. And it seems like this is a field that is almost not as well known as it could or maybe should be because it's so central to life and who we are. As soon as you start talking about it, people are nodding their heads. Of course, music is part of who we are and what we're all about. So yeah, I'm curious about what's the state of the art and not just in terms of academically and in terms of research, but the crossover into the real world. Okay, so maybe two thoughts there. One is as far as directions in the field, it is absolutely growing. When I was in graduate school, there were a few people who were really specializing in this. Like they were maybe a psychologist who occasionally did a study about music or something like that. But this whole notion of really focusing on music from the perspective of cognitive science was quite unusual. But then, you know, those people who were doing it had students and then those students got jobs and then more and more students. So there are just more and more places throughout the country and the world that you can study this. And lots and lots of students out there coming through who are active, enthusiastic performers and are also really excited about science. So that natural overlap ends up getting a lot of people excited about the field. In fact, if you're curious about where these labs are, you can go to the Academic Society, the Society for Music Perception and Cognition, and deals with these topics. Their website is musicperception.org, and they have a lab map there where you can just look at a map and they have little pins for all the places where you can study these topics. Pretty widely distributed these days. So that's really healthy. As far as big questions and methodological turns, as in other areas around big data and leveraging, you know, what can we do with some of this information that's out there because of the way we encounter music that can help us answer questions in new ways? It's one thing. And then the other thing is really having collaborations that are um, significantly cross-cultural, where people from different backgrounds with different musical experiences throughout their lives are working together and where the participants in the studies have different experiences. Like how can we understand more about variability, musical experience versus looking so much at one slice of musical musical. And Elizabeth, do you think as you do your research, you explicitly think about making the connection to the general public? And actually, did you realize that was going to happen when you wrote the book on repetition? So I wrote this very short introduction on the psychology of music, and that was expressly intended to be something a person could read if they're curious about the area. But there are other books out there that have really done this. Dan Levitin has a book called This Is Your Brain on Music. Oliver Sacks had a book called Musicophilia, where he looked at cases of people who for instance, had music stuck in their head all the time, could never get it out, just all these kinds of interesting phenomena. So there are good entry points for people who have some curiosity that aren't in the field itself. But also for you, do you find that 
part of portfolio work. This is almost like a philosophy of academic work, getting into the research, doing the work, not worrying that much about the broader application, and that's fine. But then there are other fields that are very, very applied. And I've always thought that as academics, if we're studying something that does touch on people's lives in some way, whether it's in you know, my case about how you can be a better leader, let's say in an organization, that it's part of what our job is. I define the job of an academic creation and dissemination of knowledge and whatever that field happens to be. And the dissemination of knowledge includes not often my colleagues do this or even agree with it, which is fine. Not everybody has to do it. But the dissemination of knowledge to a wide population who can benefit both intellectually and maybe practically from the findings that you're generating in your lab and your writings as well. I mean, not only do I agree with what you just said wholeheartedly, but I also think that you can't do really good research, in my opinion, unless you really are benefiting from perspectives that are different and aren't just from this narrow group of brainwashed people <laughs> who've all had a certain set, who share a certain set of assumptions. I mean, you need to challenge those to move forward. So I feel like there's another benefit to doing work that people can make sense of and relate to in some way. It's just that there are that now more people and more perspectives in the conversation and that produces just better research ultimately. Yeah, I agree. One of the things I noticed that you're going to be speaking about is about imagination. This is in Athens, I think, this conference. And this is all from my looking at your Twitter. That's how I discover all these things. <laughs> oh, no, I should probably pay attention to Twitter. Yeah, what, what are you doing? Well, there you go. <laughs> Somebody is paying attention. And it's on music, listening, and the imagination. I suppose, so I'm going to ask you, we've touched on that a little bit, but I'm curious. I mean, it's a great topic. I love the idea and I want to know, just get a sense what's on your mind on that topic because that's been part of your portfolio of work before and whether you'll end up with 35,000 words of notes. (laughs) (laughs) So there, I'm really interested. I mean, there are lots of senses of musical imagination. You could think about imagining sounds that you might want to create as a performer and artist. And that's all interesting. What I'm focusing on in that talk and in my work these days is around imaginings people sustain while they're listening to music. So if you're listening and you're imagining riding in a pickup with your grandmother or you're imagining people having a sword fight, it's that imagining that I'm really interested in because we've been able to do some work where we get people to just give us free response descriptions of what they were imagining. So it should be really idiosyncratic individual responses. But we're actually finding that if we take people who are live in college towns in the U.S. Midwest, for example, they will give us startlingly similar kinds of responses to particular excerpts in a way that does not convey if you now look at somebody in a different place who's had a very different set of musical experiences. So there really is this shared level of associations that music seems to have that I found really surprising and that seems really intriguing and worthy of more study. That is intriguing is the right word because that's a mystery. You wouldn't think, probably you find some patterns. When you look enough, it's like a big data thing. You always find some patterns, but what are the meaningful patterns is the tricky part. I'll say, right, one quick thing there is that what natural language processing tools now allow you to do is like we could look at using these giant models that have been created by like scouring the internet, looking at all this text. We can see how similar sets of responses are, these imaginative descriptions people give us, when they're organized according to the excerpt they were listening to, when they reported the imagining, versus then we can just scramble. We did it like 2,000 times. We scrambled the stories so they weren't organized by excerpt. And then you can measure how much similarity you expect to get by chance and compare the similarity that you found between responses when they were actually related to the same excerpt and thus pick out what is a meaningful level of similarity so that you're sure you're not just data gone wild. (laughs) Data gone wild, that's right. Very, very interesting. I think I have another dozen questions for you, but we've been going for an hour. And so we get towards the end and I have a favorite last question. It's about advice. Maybe it's a bit more personal question in that it's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back, and it's pretty interesting because you were talking about your earlier years in high school or going to conservatory and things you wanted to do. But if you could magically go back to the 20-year-old Elizabeth, wherever you happen to be then, and lean over to her and say, if there's one thing maybe you want to know about, about life, about whatever. One thing you want to think about, one lesson you've learned that you wouldn't necessarily know or couldn't have known at the age of 20, what might that be? What's that bit of advice for yourself if you could go back in time? So I think one thing that can be really helpful for me is just knowing that it's okay if people don't like it. (laughs) People might not like it. That's okay. 
That is very powerful for everybody. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, there are lines there, right? Because it's about figuring out what feedback you're getting that is moving you forward, that is the direction you want to go in versus naysaying that is preventing you from doing what you really do value genuinely and kind of believe in. This is actually a really tricky thing that you're bringing up because it's healthy to get feedback and to get a lot of feedback. You get better and that's good. But some of that feedback is not as healthy as some others. And I guess you need a certain level of maturity to be able to process all of that. I think for me, it did take just life experience to be able to sort that out more effectively. Yeah, I could see that. I often say when get feedback, let's say actually reviews of papers. So that's something we understand from the academic world, reviews of papers, but it could be reviews of your work and other jobs that you really do need to pay attention to what this commentary is and how it can help you get better. But you can't let it control you. It can't let it change you because you still have that inner core of who you are and what you want to do. And you definitely can't let it beat you down because I don't know about your field, but Certainly, I recall from some reviewer comments, they're not always the nicest comments in the world. And if you let it get to you, then you're out of business. You got to develop a thick skin. So it's like having a thick skin, but being completely open to ideas and feedback at the same time, which is a neat trick. Yeah. And so I now view that as an important part of student mentorship is helping them just notice that difference and sort through it. And seems like a place where mentorship is really key. You could borrow my short-term mentoring tip in my field to PhD students. It's reviewers know everything and reviewers know nothing. And both are true. Both are mostly true. Neither are completely true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's the same type of idea. Well, this has been great, Elizabeth. I really appreciate the time and the ideas and the imagination to get into a field that probably very few of our listeners know a lot about. I didn't know a lot about it, but I learned a lot about that. I think we'll put in the show notes some links to your lab and some of the other things you're doing for people who want to get in a little bit deeper. So, Elizabeth Margulis, thanks so much for being on the SIDCast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.